The first reading is from Genesis 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Our second reading is from Romans 8, verses 9 to 11. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. This is the word of the Lord. Jerusalem, home of three great religions, the so-called city of peace. In the blistering heat of July 15th, 1099, 10,000 European crusaders broke through Jerusalem's walls and fought their way up here to one of Islam's most sacred sites and committed one of the great atrocities of Christian history. Thousands barricaded themselves in up here and sought refuge in the mosque. Some even climbed the roof of the mosque to escape. But the crusaders burst through and slaughtered men, women, and children. Some they threw off the high walls to their deaths. The rest they butchered. The carnage apparently filled this great promenade. When the fighting was done, the pilgrims, as they like to call themselves, marched 500 metres that way to the ancient Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where they held a thanksgiving service. The irony is scorching. Near this church a millennium earlier, Jesus of Nazareth had died on a Roman cross, having called his followers to love their enemies. I hardly know what to say. Indeed, and what made that scene all the more difficult to film was the fact that my guide, Esrei, given to us by the Al-Aqsa Mosque for the day, was standing just off camera as I delivered those lines. She's a devout Muslim, and here I was repeating my lines about Christians slaughtering Muslims. And by the time I got my lines correct, uh, three or four times uh, through, I could tell she had a tear in her eye and was very confronting to have to then say those lines again, knowing that she was right there listening to me. Um, afterwards, the crew was packing up and I took her aside and I said, I'm so sorry. 
Now, at one level, that's illogical. I get that. I wasn't there. Uh, my relatives weren't there. There weren't many Scots involved. Um, and yet, it felt like the right thing to say. She was beautiful, actually. She, she just said, oh, no, it's okay. It's fine. It's fine. But I could tell it wasn't fine. Um, I could tell that Christian bad behavior had left a 900-year wound in the lives of Jerusalem Muslims. It's very confronting. And I started tonight with that, not just because I want to promote the documentary, which is out now, uh, but more importantly, I'm going to say some really positive things about the church tonight, at least about the church as Jesus intended it. And yet I don't want to give the impression I think the church has only done very happy things. So will you remember that, especially when I get toward the end? And I, I talk about some of the evidence we have of what the church is doing today. Uh, please remember, I don't think that's what the church has always done. I spent three years filming a documentary outlining exactly how bad Christians can behave. So we have been uh, walking our way through the Apostles' Creed for the last uh, few weeks. And the idea has been to try and summarize the Christian faith. The Apostles' Creed is a statement of the Christian faith in just 83 words in its original language, three simple stanzas summarizing the Christian faith in a way that all the denominations agree to. This is not just Anglican Christianity, this is Baptist Christianity, Presbyterian Christianity, Uniting Church, Pentecostals, Catholic. It's Christianity. It's the stuff all Christians agree on. And in week one, we looked at stanza one, the reality of God. God is not an object in the creation that you ought to be able to test and find somewhere. God is the architect of creation. We looked last week at the history of Jesus and especially at the center of the center of the Christian faith, which is Christ's death and resurrection for our amnesty, for our forgiveness. And this week, we're going to look at the life of uh, the Spirit, which is the uh, third stanza and focus of a, a major focus of the Christian faith. Uh, but before I get to the themes of community and eternity, uh, both of which are part of the Spirit's role, I want to confront the, I don't know if elephant in the room is the right thing to say, uh, the awkward topic of Trinity. The Trinity, the Christian belief that God is three persons and yet God is one. So the um, third stanza of the creed begins, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And that is clearly parallel to the opening stanza, I believe in God the Father, the second stanza, and in Jesus Christ. And the third stanza repeats it, clearly making the point that the Spirit is not just another item of belief, the Spirit is God, just as Jesus is and just as the Father is. I realize this is deeply weird. You ask a Christian, is God three or is God one? And they say, yes. And that doesn't help the conversation at all. 
Uh, one of my favorite podcasters is Melvin Bragg, BBC podcast called In Our Time. And he's an atheist, and on one of his um, episodes, he described the Trinity as that muddle Christians got themselves into. I think a lot of people uh, feel that. And I accept that the Trinity is mathematically challenging. Is it three or is it one? How is it three in one? But despite the mathematical problem, I, I really believe that the Trinity answers a more fundamental question that is a philosophical question with huge personal implications. The question is this, how can God be eternally and essentially love if there was no other, no beloved in eternity to love and be loved by? Maybe you've never thought about this, but how could love be an essential part of God's character if in eternity there was no other to love and be loved by? I mean, was God only potentially love until he had the bright idea of making you lot? You know, whenever God made humanity, ah, oh, finally, someone I can love and who can love me. See, if God were a monad, as the philosophers of religion put it, a single entity, essentially, and for eternity, you cannot say that that entity is love, essentially. But the Bible is crystal clear, God is love, which implies there is a lover and a beloved, essentially, eternally. And the Trinity answers this question by saying, God is in His very nature three persons in communion. Father, Son, and Spirit. And although uh, the Trinity gives me a mathematical headache, and I do wish the maths of God were a little simpler, I would trade the math that I can understand for the assurance that God is love every day of the week. And the Trinity assures me that God in His essential nature is a loving communion. And it's out of that communion that Christianity gets its massive emphasis on community, which is my second point. As soon as Christians say they believe in the Holy Spirit, they add the words, the Holy Catholic Church and communion of saints. And the important thing to observe about the way that the um, creed is structured is just as the first stanza was all about what God the Creator does, and the second stanza, all about what God the Son does. The third stanza is all about what the Spirit does. The Spirit builds the Catholic Church. The Spirit builds the communion of the saints. Uh, to put it simply, the heart of the Spirit's role now is to take very ordinary people like me and you, and fit them out for community, for human community. And that's what the creed means by Holy Catholic Church and communion of the saints, but I know that, that they're weird comments. As soon as you hear Catholic Church, you might be thinking, did I come to the right address? Isn't that the church on the other side of the city? I mean, they have Catholic like on the notice board and everything, so they're like the Catholic Church, and this is the Anglican Church, right? No. The word Catholic 
kataholos in Greek means universal. That's all it means. And in fact, we know the people who put the creed together deliberately put the word Catholic to distinguish it from any particular church, whether the Roman Catholic Church or the Jerusalem Catholic Church or the um, uh, Syrian Catholic Church. It, they are just all part of the universal church. When, when Christians say they believe in the Holy Catholic Church, they don't mean that other brand down the road. They mean all churches that confess this truth about Christ. And, and the expression communion of saints, communion just means fellowship, a bond, a partnership, a togetherness, and saints is the normal biblical word for Christian. Again, in our culture, we've come to think that saint means a superhero Christian. But if you did a word search in your Bible, saint means ordinary Christian. It's the normal word for Christians. My point is, the Spirit's role is to take ordinary human beings from everywhere and bond them in a communion that we call the Holy Catholic Church, in which the principal reality is communion, communion of the saints. I can't deny that Christians haven't always lived up to this. Some of you uh, in the building or watching online will have your own private wounds of Christian bad behavior. And I reckon every genuine Christian in, in the building would want to say to you, we are sorry. But when this creed was put together, friends, Christianity was breathing the life of community in a Roman empire that was suffocating under the weight of its own hierarchy and elitism and racism. And the Christian church came along as this one place in the Roman world where you could be brothers and sisters, regardless of whether you were a slave or free, male or female, elite or poor, black or white, since we have to remember from the beginning there were Africans in the church. The church boomed across North Africa in those early centuries. And um, one very famous scholar from Princeton, Peter Brown is his name, is one of the leading historians of Christianity, actually says, um, sums up what he thinks Christianity gave the Roman world when it, he says it gave the Roman world an urban lung. Lung. People could breathe. The Roman world was so suffocating in its elitism. But in the church, there was family. Now, that's not just ancient history. There is powerful evidence that this is still the case today. I'm not sure if you know this face, Andrew Lee. He's the shadow minister for charities, Labour MP uh, and an atheist. Uh, but he's a, a leading academic in the area of social capital. Uh, what things in Australian society build community? He's an expert on it. 
And uh, he did his PhD uh, in Harvard under Robert Putnam, who's world famous in this area. And Andrew Lee has uh, brought his expertise to bear on the Australian setting. But his chapter on religion in Australia begins with him assuring his readers that he's an atheist. And when I first read that, I thought, why would he bother doing that? The reason is, he goes on to say the most extraordinarily complimentary things about the church. I am almost embarrassed to read these words. Among churchgoers, 25% also participated in a community service or civic association over the same period. By contrast, among non-churchgoers, just 12% participated in a community or civic association. Regular churchgoers are 16 percentage points more likely to have been involved in a voluntary activity and 22 percentage points more likely to have helped the needy. Those who attend church regularly are more likely to say that they can count among their friends a business owner, a manual worker, or a welfare recipient. Few other institutions are as effective in fostering this bridging social capital between rich and poor. He goes on to quip that the blood donation rates of churchgoers are so much higher than the general public that if more Australians went to church, the Red Cross could solve its problems. Part of the reason for this communion, this community effect of the church is in the next line of the Apostles' Creed, the forgiveness of sins. And you might think that line actually belongs in the second stanza where it talks about Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, because that's how we get forgiveness of sins. But actually, it, it belongs here perfectly well, after all. Because forgiveness of sins is the ultimate leveler, and therefore the ultimate basis for community. Because so many of our organizations are based on things you can be better or worse at. Yeah, you think of the bridge club. Everyone knows who the better players are. Think of the tennis club. Uh, think of, you know, your office. You know, who's making the KPIs and who's not. Think of um, the Qantas Club, right? Where it's points and ranking. But in the church, we are all sinners. So no one can look down on anyone else. And we're all freely forgiven. So no one can say, I've climbed the ladder and looked down on others. Um, This is put beautifully by Francis Spufford, a British intellectual who accidentally became a Christian, uh, or at least an English Anglican, and uh, he wrote a book about it. It's a hilarious book. If you don't mind a lot of swearing, it's a really fun book. Uh, it, It dawned on him, as he went to all these sort of London dinner parties amongst his elite set, how judgmental they were how elitist they were and how they, they talked down and looked down on the others. And he's sitting there thinking, this is terrible. We're more judgmental than the church. That's saying something. But then he started to look into the church. And he says that actually it, it was this idea that we are all sinners, freely forgiven, that made him see that community can be established by that doctrine. Here's how he put it in his uh, 
quite fun book. So of all things, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people, shiny, happy, squeaky clean, and excluding the bad people, frightening, alien, repulsive, for the very simple reason that there aren't any good people. Not that can be securely designated as such. Christianity can't be about circling the wagons of virtue out in the suburbs and keeping the unruly inner city at bay. This, I realize, goes flat contrary to the present predominant image of it as something existing in prissy, fastidious little enclaves far from life's messier zones and inclined to get all judgmental about them. There are Christians like that. That's true. The religion certainly can slip into being a club or a cozy affinity group or a wall against the world, but it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty. Not all guilty of the same things or in the same way, but enough for us to recognize each other. Or more simply, if we're all sinners, no one gets to look down on anyone else. If we're all freely forgiven, no one has bragging rights over another. And when the Holy Spirit comes into your life and convinces you of forgiveness of your sins, there is a basis for community there. Trinity, community, thirdly, finally, eternity. The creed ends with a reference to eternity, I believe, in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. But you might think, what's this got to do with the Holy Spirit? Surely we're a long way from the Spirit. No. From the beginning of the Bible, the Spirit's role was to animate, was to breathe life where there is nothing. That's why I asked for the opening paragraph of the Bible to be read. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Okay, it's inanimate. It's, it's chaos. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And then the show begins. Now, interestingly, the word spirit in both the uh, Bible's Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek for the New Testament, the word spirit is the same word for breath. They're exactly the same word. And so this idea of the spirit being about animating, about breathing life where there is death, is not just you know, in the Bible's teaching about the spirit, it's in the very etymology of the word spirit. And what we see in this Old Testament, we see in the New Testament too. Just as the Spirit was the animating force and personality at the first creation, the Spirit, according to Romans 8 and the passage we had read earlier, is the animating personality and principle of future resurrection. The Apostle Paul, writing in the middle of the first century, says, and if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. The spirit's role now 
is to build us into a community. It's to create these love relationships called the communion of the saints. The Spirit's role in the future is to breathe life where there is death and grant us eternal life, what the creed calls the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now, I don't mind admitting much, I don't mind admitting much, that I am probably a little more uh, death conscious than the average Mossman boy who moved all the way to Kalara. I, despite, you know, very privileged upbringing, had a lot of death when I was young. Uh, I'm sure I've told you before that I lost my dad in a plane crash when I was nine, but I also lost some of my best friends in the middle of high school. One lad in our classroom died. Another motorcycle accident outside the Orpheum in Mossman. And I think that's just made me more death conscious than, than is perhaps healthy. I'm willing to go out on a limb and say, I should probably have counselling. But I tell you that because I am super convinced that my unhealthy state of mind in thinking maybe a little bit too much about death is nowhere near as unhealthy as our Australian culture that tries to avoid thinking about death at all costs. So much of our, our world is designed to keep you thinking not about the ultimate reality that every one of us will face, but the now and the present and life and pleasure, and even when we get to funerals. And I say this as a minister who's led so many funerals. People are weirded out by death. I don't just mean saddened by it, overwhelmed by it. Yes, that's perfectly natural, but in, in, in especially in sort of Western culture, really awkward about talking about death. To the point where it is very common to have people say, oh, we want the funeral not to be so much a funeral as a celebration of life. I apologize if you've said that recently about a funeral. But I think that's a junk approach to a funeral. If you can't face death and look death in the eye at a blooming funeral, what does that say about our culture? If you've got to say even that moment where we say goodbye to a loved one has to be all about the life before we got here and nothing about the great full stop of death and, and whether it really is a full stop after all or perhaps it's an ellipsis. To avoid all that, I think, is very unhealthy. One of the great privileges of my ministry was meeting this man, James Garbutt, a magistrate of the New South Wales Court. Those of you who are lawyers may know the name. He turned up at my church in Roseville at the early morning service, so he stood out because we don't get many visitors at that service. And so I was leading the service that day and went up to him straight after the service and said, what brings you here? He said, I'm worried you're going to be a bit cynical about this, but I've just received a terrible cancer diagnosis. 
And I said, of course, I'm the last person to be cynical about this. That's a fantastic reason to come to church. He was worried that I would think, oh, a guy gets cancer, wants, you know, thinks about God. That's awesome. The way he described it was, it, it dawned on me, only two things matter. My family, and if there's a God, God. Pretty good, pretty good logic. And so began months of these lovely cups of tea I would have with James. I'd go up in the afternoon to his flat, it was right near uh, where I lived, and we would talk only intellectually at first. He wanted to know everything. Our Trinity, we discussed the Trinity, predestination, uh, sin, atonement, history. We got on to history pretty early. And he made the point that my um, favorite discipline of history is very similar to his professional interest in the law. Because on the bench, he's been making judgments based on testimony for decades. Assessing testimony, working out contradictions between testimony, working out what is good and bad testimony, and then making a judgment. And he said to me one day, it really amazes me what major judgments I've made in the courtroom for other people based only on testimony. It doesn't often come down to ballistics and forensics. It's very often just testimony. And he said, that's what history's like. I said, you bet. He read the Gospels through, and he focused on the resurrection narratives of the four Gospels, because he figured he might have a million questions, but he doesn't have much time, so the resurrection, if that's true, that's the whole show. So he read and reread the Gospel narratives about the resurrection, and he said to me one day, John, that resurrection, there's no way that was made up. I've been judging testimony for decades. That is good testimony. James ended up embracing Christianity with all his heart. He had remaining questions. He sure did. But he was very wise in just focusing on the resurrection. He died with a deep faith that Christ's resurrection would be the guarantee that the Spirit would breathe life into him beyond the grave. I saw James a few days before he died. I went into um, Greenwich Hospital to see him. He was in a morphine stupor, but I said, James, it's John. Do you want me to pray? And he shot his hand up through the sheets and grabbed hold of my hand, and I prayed. Kind of useless prayer where a clergyman doesn't even know what the right thing to pray is anymore. And by the time I got to the Amen, he was back asleep, and three days later, he was gone. I believe more alive than any of us in this room. The family asked me to lead his funeral. Great privilege. The legal fraternity of Sydney turned up to St. Andrew's Roseville packed the rafters, and they had eulogy after eulogy after eulogy, five actually, which just a hot tip from a professional, that's too many, five is too many. 
anyway. But a lot of them were lawyers, barristers, and so on. And, and there was this recurring theme in what they said about James. He was a man of impeccable judgment. They just spoke of how fair-minded he was, how acute his mind, how clear his perception in detecting bias, in detecting contradiction, in weighing testimony and coming to a judgment. I had a sermon prepared, but I threw that out and got up and said, you've all just told me how impeccable his judgment was. Let me tell you about the last judgment he made on the basis of testimony. He judged that the resurrection was true, that Christ was raised so that we might have eternal life. Friends, Christians have disagreed on lots of stuff over the years. And to our shame, we have sometimes fought over these differences. But there's an awful lot Christians agree on. And the Apostles' Creed captures it. The reality of God the Creator. Not a God hiding in the universe, but God, the eternal, immaterial mind and source of all things. The history of Jesus. And the center of the center, His death and resurrection for our amnesty. And finally, we all agree on the life-giving Spirit whose role is to come into your life, if you believe, and breathe the life of community and in eternity to breathe life where there is death. And if you haven't trusted God before, why not? Do you have a good reason? Why not say to him, God, you are my creator, but I haven't treated you as you deserve. Forgive me because of Christ. Breathe your spirit into my life. Something like that. Let me pray just like that now. Lord, my Creator, thank You for giving us life and breath and everything else. Forgive me for having not treated you as you deserve. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, please pardon me, forgive my sins. And grant me your spirit. Breathe life into me now and for eternity. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.